Hey y'all, it's me, Ellen. Since our stuff is still in boxes, we are still on a recording break, but I wanted to put something up in the feed for y'all this week, so I reached into our backlog and picked out one of our most popular episodes from February of 2022. If you're a new listener who hasn't heard this one yet, I think you'll really like it, and even if you have heard it before, a refresher couldn't hurt, right? Also, I just wanted to say that we are now on threads. Uh, our handle is at just the zoo of us pod, and there will be a link in the episode description. We'll be back to recording new episodes as soon as possible. But in the meantime, please enjoy this replay of episode 133. friends it is ellen weatherford and christian weatherford and we're here with another episode of just the zoo of us your favorite animal review podcast where we take your very favorite animals and we review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness ingenuity and aesthetics we are not zoological experts but we do a lot of research and we try our best to make sure we're getting those facts right we're reaching all the way up to the top shelf mm-hmm. sometimes pulling out the step stool well, you're really tall, so sometimes I can't reach the really good facts, so I have to call you in so that you can reach the good facts for me. These are on top of the cabinet facts. Mm-hmm. That actually I put up there myself and then didn't realize that I was able to push them up there, but then I wasn't going to be able to get them <laughs> down. So then I have to get you in the room to get the facts down for me. Perfect. It's the expensive ones. <laughs> <laughs> Guest facts. <laughs> <laughs> we got company coming. Go get the good facts out. <laughs> Put away our paper facts. <laughs> Last time you and I were here together recording together, we had to tear ourselves away from Pokemon Legends Arceus. Now, similar boat, but this time I've had to tear myself away from Horizon Forbidden West. Mm-hmm. which you can tell that I love you guys a whole, whole lot because we're making this podcast right now instead of playing Horizon Forbidden West like I could be, <laughs> like I could be doing right now. But I'm here with you guys because I love you. And this week, it's my turn to go first. Perfect. What do you got? You're going to love this. All and right. I think everyone listening is going to love this. This is a popular animal. This is the slow loris. Ooh. Yes. So the slow loris is the genus Nycticebus, possibly fun. Nycticebus. Uh, the species was submitted by Ronnie Zaragoza, who provided a lot of really interesting information about slow lorises in the email to me, like as part of like the pitch, like you should talk about the slow loris, which I got to say is a great way to get us to review an animal is if in your pitch for this animal, you include a bunch of cool information that is a spectacular way to do it, mm-hmm. including a paper that Ronnie wrote for a primatology class on anti-predator adaptations in the slow loris. Wow. So like, perfect, right? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Ronnie. Spectacular email. It clearly worked because here we are. <laughs> I'm also getting more information from the San Diego Zoo's website, as well as Animal Diversity Web and some other sources that I will cite as they come up. So to begin with, um, if you've never seen a slow loris, this is kind of like a little monkey. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it has a little bit more of a, of a puppy dog face, but it does have sort of a general monkey body plan. I okay. Think it doesn't have a long tail. It has like a nub tail that you really can't see. All right. They are about 10 inches, which is 25 centimeters long, and they only weigh just about a pound. So they're not huge. They're pretty little. Mm-hmm. They are found in forests throughout Southeast Asia. So like Indonesia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, that whole area, um, you'll find these slow lorises. Now, they comprise this whole genus, which consists of at least eight species, and they're all pretty similar. So actually, they used to all be considered the same species, mm-hmm. but under kind of closer investigation, turns out they're all distinct species, and they have certain areas where they live. So there'll be like one species that lives in like Borneo, one that lives in Java, like different species of slow lorises in different areas. So lorises are types of primates that are called strepsirines. Have you ever heard this word before, strepsirine? I don't think so. This is a group that also contains the lemurs. Oh, okay. Yeah, so lemurs, which are only found in Madagascar. And it also contains the galagos that are in sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. Another name they go by is bush babies. You remember oh, bush yes, baby? yes. Yeah, yes. that's what they are. So they're related to lorises so the defining characteristic of this group called the strepsirines is their wet puppy dog nose oh yes this is there's a word for this actually i learned this recently the rhinarium you did you that, tell me this? you learned that from me i learned that from you <laughs> what was it you told me about the rhinarium this was the wombat wombat yes it was mm-hmm. so thank you for teaching me this word the rhinarium <laughs> um so they have that wet puppy dog nose in contrast to the other group of primates called the haplorines mm. they don't have that wet puppy dog nose instead they have these kind of defined like nostrils with upper lips mm. so this is like basically the rest of the primates so monkeys Apes, humans, we are all haplorines. Ah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the primate family tree and where the lorises fall in it. So they're closer to lemurs than they are to us. But they are still primates, so they're like our distant cousins. Got it. So I'm just going to kind of get right into it with our ratings for the slow loris. So if this is your first time listening, we do give our animals scores out of 10 in categories with the first one being effectiveness. So this is physical adaptations to the animal's body that let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do. So get food, not become food, make more of themselves, stuff like that. They're trying to not be dead and continue being. I give this little loris an 8 out of 10. That's very good. It's pretty good. Right off the bat, I want to talk about something that I think you are going to find really interesting. That okay. you always find really interesting in animals that have this. Yeah. Venom. Yay. <laughs> so slow lorises are among very few known mammals that actually produce venom. Mm-hmm. This is something that you'll see in other animals. You see it in reptiles. You see it in bugs. But you don't really see it in mammals very often. That's very unusual. Mm-hmm. Other venomous animals include selenodons from the Caribbean. They're these little shrew-looking creatures, Mm. tiny little burrowing mammals. Also, some species of shrews do produce venom. There's also the platypus from Australia, which produces venom from spurs in their feet. 
And then also vampire bats from Central America produce like small amounts of venom. It's not like a lethal thing. It's more for like numbing and paralyzing. It's like a local anesthetic, right? So yeah. that it doesn't feel the bite. Right, because they're usually preying on sleeping animals. Right. So it's more to like prevent them from waking up. And, huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't know that either. It's very interesting. But so very, very few mammals are known to produce venom. But this is the sort of thing where it's like maybe more make venom than we know about, but we haven't checked. <laughs> because there's only one way to find out right yeah (laughs) (laughs) but uh, slow lorises are among them so i got a wealth of information on their venom from this really informative paper called mad bad and dangerous to know the biochemistry ecology and evolution of slow loris venom and that is by k and isola nicaris et al and that was in Deep breath. This is a long name. The Journal of Venomous Animals and Toxins, Including Tropical Diseases. And that was in September of 2013. My favorite anime. (laughs) They are like that now, aren't they? (laughs) Oh, no. My high school teacher is a journal of venomous animals and toxins, including (laughs) tropical diseases. (laughs) Um, so yeah so this paper was awesome really just dives into like the makeup of the venom that they make and what they use it for Mm -hmm. very cool paper so here's what i learned from it basically (laughs) so near their elbows lorises have slow lorises because there are actually a different type of group of lorises called slender lorises the slow lorises have these glands, and these glands secrete an oily liquid. Now, the liquid itself is not toxic. Okay. But when they mix it with their saliva, oh. that reaction makes it become toxic. Huh. So it has to combine with their saliva to create this venom. But the liquid that they secrete, um, it smells really bad. <laughs> so they use that to ward off predators because huh. it would be like, ooh, that's gross. I don't want to eat that. So they, they're doing a little bit of armpit alchemy (laughs) (laughs) secreting this gland and then they'll lick themselves and groom themselves to spread the venomous substance all over their body yeah and then when they groom themselves and they get that on their mouth like on their teeth and stuff like that then when they go to bite something that introduces the toxin like that's how they inject the toxin is by biting with this like venomous saliva Hmm. yeah it's a little weird could this double as a poisonous type situation so this does get into that like distinction between how we use the words for poisonous and venomous right with the idea being that if it's poisonous you bite it and you die right that's poison it bites you and you die that's venom yeah they do use it as a venom like they'll spread it on their mouth and then chomp and then that bite is is a venomous bite and it can cause some serious damage so obviously not affecting themselves though they're not immune to their own. <laughs> they're not? Well, it's not the sort of thing where like when they groom themselves, it's uh-huh. not going to poison them and then they die from grooming themselves. Uh, okay. But they can use it against each other. They oh. bite each other and then their saliva is getting into the wound. Okay. So that kind of tells me that this would probably not hurt something if it ingested it. I didn't see any records of that happening. That That's the only way this makes sense Because they me. do get eaten yeah, yeah, yeah. by other stuff and it doesn't <laughs> kill them by eating them. Or I mean, because if it did harm something by being ingested, they then themselves would be harmed by it right Right. here's something weird the venom's protein structure is very very similar 
to the protein found in cat saliva that makes people allergic to cats. Oh. Yeah. Meaning that people who are allergic to cats, slow loris venom is like super effective against those people. Mm. In fact, the only documented human fatality resulting from a slow loris bite that I could find, and I kind of looked high and low, but I could only find one documented case of this happening. It was in 1972. Uh Uh-huh. And it was caused by anaphylaxis, an allergic reaction to the venom. Okay. So if you're allergic to cats, you would also be allergic to this venom because it's it's shaped similarly. That's a fairly common allergen. It is, yeah. <laughs> so one question about this is why venom? Why bother with venom? Because mm-hmm. they are omnivores. So they do eat like fruits, nuts, plant matter, but they also eat little things like bugs. Mm -hmm. But their prey are very small. Right. (laughs) Their prey are tiny things. These are not exactly things that they're going to be needing to deal a lot of damage to or not things that they'll need to like paralyze or like venom doesn't really seem necessary for the sort of prey that they're after because if they're biting it it's it's already done (laughs) right like it's game over that's already mission accomplished you've already got it yeah so that kind of brings up the question of like why do they have venom in the first place so Mm -hmm. that's what this paper i was talking about was examining like some possible explanations for why they have venom Mm -hmm. and there are a few things that venom helps with so first of all deterring predators like I mentioned. So lorises will groom themselves and spread their oily uh, saliva all over their body. It makes them at, at the very least not taste good, right? Like sure. best case scenario, you take a bite of a slow loris, you're like, ugh, gross, that tastes nasty. It's like licking a Switch cartridge. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever licked a Nintendo Switch cartridge, they're coated in a bitter like chemical to mm-hmm. make it taste really bad so that little kids won't eat their Switch cartridges. Thank God. I've tried it. It tastes horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not encouraging anybody out there to stick their Switch cartridges in their mouth. That is a choking hazard. Do not do that. I already suffered so that you don't have to. It tastes horrible. <laughs> Take my word for it. But another thing it helps with, this is interesting, protection from parasites. Oh. Yeah. So slow lorises have actually been found to have way fewer parasites on their bodies than you would expect to see on a mammal of their size. Okay. So it seems to be pretty good for helping keep parasites off of their body. And then there's always fighting each other. (laughs) So like I said, they are not immune to their own venom and male slow lorises can be very aggressive towards each other, Mm. especially in breeding season. So if the slow loris uh, has licked its pits and sort of added venom to its bite, it is quite likely that if they bite each other that wound will not heal get infected part of like the effect of the venom is that it causes necrosis Mm -hmm. so the wound just gets worse and worse and eventually they'll die it's kind of like that like call an ambulance but not for me (laughs) like they're like super effective against each other i I find it like mm, if you're going to develop a chemical substance you might also want to develop some sort of resistance or immunity to it but do you, I guess? So, yeah, that's they have a very interesting uh, defense system in their venom. It makes me wonder if they're actually aware. That they're venomous? Right. And <laughs> they must be, right? Or is it just a byproduct of just trying not to smell good? <laughs> I, they do some things that I'll get into in the ingenuity section. They do some things that would lead me to imply that they at least have some sort of, whether it's like 
at the intellectual level uh-huh. of understanding that they have this sure. venom, that they're at least taking advantage of it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> well, then that leads my thought to are venomous snakes aware that they're venomous, you know? Right. Well, so there's some venomous snakes that can control right. the amount of venom they're putting into a bite, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to actually consciously add venom to the bite. Right. Which would imply to me that they understand how it works. Makes sense. Right. But for a, a slow loris, they can kind of control the production of the oil that they secrete because they secrete it when they're like stressed or threatened. Right. But the, it seems like the primary purpose of that oil is a, a noxious odor. Mm. So that's fun to think about. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, my bite just killed that guy. I mean, I think I think that gets into like the sort of territory that I don't think we would ever be able to right. measure. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. how much does this animal understand about its own body? I don't think that's anything yeah. we could yeah. measure without. <laughs> Good short story stuff. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> Any writers out there, hit me up. The next thing I wanted to talk about for the slow loris is their eyes. Their eyes are very interesting. Mm-hmm. So these are nocturnal animals so being nocturnal they need to see in very low light conditions animals have all sorts of interesting ways of seeing in low light they have gone the route of having very large eyes so they have big giant round eyes having big eyes lets the eyes bring in as much light as possible so when there's not a lot of light available they're just taking in every little drop of light they can they also have an interesting structure in their eyes that helps them see in the dark so Lining the backs of all of our eyeballs, so like you and me, Mm -hmm. lining the back of the eyeball is a membrane. It's a layer of tissue called the retina. So the retina contains these really important cells called photoreceptors. They take in light and they relay the information to your brain and they allow your brain to understand and interpret the signals coming in from the light. Um, These are the rods and cones that you've probably heard of. So those are the photoreceptors, the little cells in the retina that are telling your brain, here's what we're seeing. Like, here's what we're getting from the light. In the slow loris, as well as a lot of other nocturnal animals, like cats, for example, behind the retina is another layer of cells and these cells are reflective like mirrors Mm -hmm. it's like a little network of little mirrors behind the retina that reflect the light and bounce it back out the light passes through the retina bounces off these mirrored cells and back out and i was kind of confused about how that helps (laughs) (laughs) i was kind of like okay like how does that help to shine the light back out? It doesn't seem like it would do anything. But what it's doing is it's letting the light pass back through the retina again. And it gives the photoreceptors essentially a second chance to take in any light that it may have missed the first time it passed through the membrane. Bumping up that scanner DPI. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of letting the eyes take in a lot more detail Mm -hmm. than if it had only passed through once. And that reflective coating on the back of the eye uh, has a name. It's called the tapetum lucidum. Hmm. And this is what produces eye shine. So if you've ever taken a picture of a cat with a flash on and the picture comes out with the cat's eyes looking like it's shooting laser beams at you, (laughs) that's because of the tapetum lucidum in the back of their eyes. And it's to help them see in low light. It's a very cool adaptation that uh, quite a few nocturnal animals have. That's a common thing in science fiction. Oh, is it? Well, I guess fiction in general. Mm -hmm. So, for example, that Netflix show Sweet Tooth. 
Oh, I loved Sweet Tooth. Yeah. Sweet so, Tooth so is so good. Deer are another animal that has that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something they, they did with his character, the main character. Oh, yeah. Um, when his, his, his eyes would reflect light back like a deer would, where humans don't. That's right. I remember making a note of that while we were watching mm-hmm. it on Netflix, that like it was an interesting thing they did in editing where they added this like eye shine to him. Yeah. So it's often used as an indicator of a human that's maybe not entirely human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. So so now you know what that's called mm-hmm. and why and how it helps. Yeah, that sounds cool. I had heard of it, but I I didn't understand how it helped at all. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a fun little journey. <laughs> I think amphibians and reptiles also have that. I know that certain types of spiders oh, yeah. actually have it too. And <laughs> that can be really interesting if if you want. Not a lot of people want to do this, but if you want, if you like spiders, if you live in an area where there are many spiders. You can go outside at night when it's dark and take a flashlight and just sweep it along the grass mm-hmm. and see how many little eyes shine back at you. Yeah. <laughs> I am not super bothered by it, so I find it charming. Mm. If you are afraid of spiders, do not do that under any circumstances because <laughs> you will never sleep again. <laughs> it's fun to do that with the, the edges of lakes and ponds as well. Oh, yeah. It's so a good see. way to find frogs. And gators. Yes. Yeah, we've done them <laughs> to find a gator that was uh, just chilling really close to our feet. <laughs> so yeah, that's the tape them loose them that I thought cool. was really neat. Uh, they have some other cool adaptations to their body that help them climb in trees. So they have great manual dexterity, including opposable thumbs Ooh. on their hands and feet. So they can even hang on to branches with their feet and then hang like hang upside down with their feet. And then that frees up their hands to do other stuff. So they can like grab bugs mm-hmm. or hold food and manipulate objects with their hands while hanging on with their feet, which I think is a very useful skill to have. Yeah. Definitely. It is true, as their name would imply, that they're a little on the slow side. <laughs> they move through the trees at a pretty leisurely pace, and they move in a way that has been described as methodical. Mm. So it very much looks like they are really putting a lot of thought into where they're moving. Very intentional movements, placing their hands and feet in such a way that they're very slow about it. But that's not to say that they can't move quickly. So an example of an animal that literally physically cannot move quickly would be the sloth right where their muscles are literally not built to move quickly because (laughs) they have to sustain you know long periods of tension so for the slow loris they can move quickly if they need to so if something like a bug is flying by their head they can reach up and grab it quickly or if they're absolutely desperate they can move quickly in very short bursts so they can but they are still you know very very slow as their name implies which also the second part of their name loris comes from the dutch word for clown really yes i learned that it's not a local name (laughs) That was very much the name given to it by Dutch scientists. Oh, are we getting back to that descriptor of a clowned marking or something? It does kind of have, because it does have these like black ring markings around its eyes. I wouldn't describe it as clown-like, but I don't know what Dutch clowns look like. Maybe (laughs) Dutch clowns or something else entirely, but I wouldn't describe it that way. Um, I just know that the Dutch scientists who called it that called it that. But it's not the sort of thing where if they feel threatened, then they'll run away. That's not their threat response. Mm -hmm. Their slow movement 
is more to help them blend in with their surroundings. So very similar to the sloth, in fact, that slow movement actually keeps them from standing out or Mm -hmm. keeps them from being seen by predators that are more looking for movement. This is an evasion strategy called crypsis, where they're really more trying to blend in than they are to just get around quickly. When they are threatened, they prefer to just freeze. So they just completely stop moving and they will freeze for hours at a time. Hmm. Like if they're really scared, they will completely go full statue and just sit there frozen for hours, which I got to say, that takes a lot of muscle strength. Like if you imagine that you're hanging from a tree and you, you have to maintain your grip and hold on a tree for hours at a time without moving, that requires an immense amount of core strength, right? Mm-hmm. So it really does take a lot of power to like sustain effort for that long. Um, and they can do it. They, so they're, they're pretty tough little guys. I should say that their anti-predation strategies are not 100%. So they have been documented being eaten by predators in their ranges, such as reticulated pythons. Those are big boys. Yeah. Uh, eagles and even orangutans. Really? Yeah. Oh. Unusual, right? Orangutans <laughs> typically uh, tend to have more vegetarian tendencies, but huh. not 100%. I saw a paper that described an event in which an orangutan uh, caught and ate a slow loris. I guess when the opportunity presents itself. Listen, you take what you can get, okay? Mm. I ain't judging. Okay, so all this leads me to the next category for the slow loris, which is ingenuity. So these are behavioral adaptations. These are things the animal is actually actively doing. Mm -hmm. I also give it an 8 out of 10 for ingenuity for a couple of different things. Slow loris moms will park their babies in one place. Oh. Yeah, so they'll find like a safe little spot to hide their baby, put it there, and leave it there while she goes out to forage. But she does something really interesting that's this goes back to what leads me to believe that they understand to some extent that they are venomous she will groom the baby with her those gland secretions so she'll coat the baby with venom to keep it from being eaten while she goes out and forages Hmm. that makes me think they must know right well but then again it goes back to that could the primary purpose just be a bad odor yeah I don't know. I just feel like they get it, you know? So another thing that they do is that when they are threatened, a slow loris may put on a defensive display. So we've seen videos of them doing this where they stick their arms straight up in the air. But there's a different defensive display that they do that was a little mind-blowing to me when I read about it in this paper. So here's what they do. They wrap their arms over their heads. Mm -hmm. So put their, like, cross their wrists over each other with their arms up above their heads. They make a hissing sound and wave their body around. <laughs> like wave it side to side kind of while hissing and wrapping their hands over their head. Huh. So I was reading this and I was like, what? This <laughs> what are you talking about? This is nonsensical. This is some Dr. Seuss nonsense that they're doing. But here's the thing. That motion, sound, pose combined with the markings over their eyes mm-hmm actually make them when they do this look almost exactly like a spectacled cobra oh yes okay so me saying that out loud it doesn't sound like it would work (laughs) but when you look at a picture of a spectacled cobra side by side with a picture of the slow loris and the Mm. markings on its face they look actually a lot like the eye spots on a spectacled cobra. Hmm. So it looks, it's actually a spot on impression, honestly. Like it's pretty good. Uh, So I thought mimicry of a cobra 
Yeah. That's awesome, right? That's so cool. That's one of those things that's like a lot of speculation. It's a lot of like, this is maybe what they're doing, but right. if it is, whew, my hat's off. That That's pretty good. And plus maybe with it being likely done at night, maybe it's easier to sell that way too. Mm, true. Like maybe if you're already in a low light situation, <laughs> you can kind of be like, oh no, yeah, it's me, a cobra. Don't look into it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I saw references to a behavior in which the slow loris may sometimes escape confrontations with predators by simply letting go of the branch and falling to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And just falling on the ground. I I guess what they're doing is they're kind of rolling the dice and like hoping that the fall damage they're going to take is less than the damage that would be dealt by the predator that's attacking them. (laughs) They're kind of hedging their bets a little bit and being like, all right, might as well fall to the ground. Easy speed boost. <laughs> I've suddenly become 9.8 meters per second squared faster. <laughs> so every time I found this claim, it was sourced to one magazine article from 1984. Okay. And I could not find that magazine that had that article in it anywhere. So I looked and looked and looked. I could not find I wish I could find it so I yeah. could see what where that came from. If that was like something they saw or, you know, like I, I really couldn't find anything else on that. So like maybe that's not a thing. I'm just I saw it. I thought it was funny. <laughs> There's definitely a slow lurch out there like, yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> Definitely didn't just slip at an opportune time. (laughs) Was it written by a slow loris, I bet? Sometimes they will bravely plummet to the forest floor. (laughs) I was definitely not caught slacking. (laughs) It's like when you uh, somebody waves and you think they're waving at you, so you wave back, they realize they were waving at somebody behind you, so you try to play it off like you look really cool. Like, oh yeah, I meant to. I I actually meant to wave at somebody over there. Yeah, I was also waving at someone behind you. <laughs> that wall right there. <laughs> Just trying to play it off cool. The final category for the slow loris, and this is kind of the bulk of what I really wanted to get into today, is aesthetics. Mm. Obviously, this is a full a billion out of ten, like whatever is the highest thing we can give, I gotta give it to the slow loris. They have every single feature you could possibly look for in a cute animal, except maybe a tail. I would like to see a fluffy tail, and they don't have a fluffy tail. I like a fluffy tail. Do you count smell as part of aesthetics? I mean, we have in the past, so I guess I do need to factor that in. Um, I just feel like they have every single feature that you want in a cute animal because, you know, they have the baby primate features, right? Of like the big eyes really close together, forward facing, and like enough of like familiarity where you see it and you get like that's a primate. So it feels at least a little bit familiar. It's relatable for a human. Like the human brain is kind of like hardwired to find those features cute. So they have all that plus a sweet little puppy dog nose and really thick fluffy fur and these adorable little black markings around their eyes that make their eyes look even bigger and cuter. It's just like a very precious, adorable. And if you see them moving around, their slow methodical movements, I think make them soothing to watch. Mm. You know, like they're just nice to watch as they're calmly moving from place to place rather than a small like rodent or something that has more of a scurrying motion. This is like a chill looking animal. Mm -hmm. All of that being said, unfortunately, they are quite literally too cute for their own good. 
So slow lorises are so cute that they are the prime targets for illegal pet trade. Yeah. Yeah. They're captured out of the wild. Their teeth are usually removed so that they don't pose a threat either to human handlers or to the other lorises that they're kept with. Like when they're transported, they're kept in kind of small cages with other lorises that have been caught. And like I said, male lorises tend to be aggressive towards each other. So it's pretty likely that they'll just kill each other. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they don't even make it to the place where they're going to be sold. Like they die in transport because it's just a very stressful experience. And then once they are sold, things do not get better for them from there. They really don't do well in captivity, especially in a household. Like they're already hard to keep in like a zoo setting. But then, you know, especially in a household with somebody who's not a professional, doesn't really understand what they need so in case you're listening you're like i really want a pet slow loris i'll give you some reasons why you don't first of all they're nocturnal so they need pretty much complete darkness during the times that they're active and during the times that a person would be awake and wanting to like have fun playing with their little pet they're sleeping Mm -hmm. right so totally different activity cycles They also need a pretty complex diet of fruits, seeds, and bugs, and invertebrates, and like small prey um, that can be really tricky to maintain. So what ends up happening is that the majority of slow lorises kept in captivity usually develop really bad like malnutrition, metabolic bone disease, like things that result from nutritional imbalance. They usually end up, or like obesity is a really bad problem among captive slow lorises, like the nutrition is almost never done correctly. Hmm. They're also arboreal, so they do need a lot of space to climb. They need a lot of vertical area. They need like a wide territory. They travel a lot in nature. They have a wide range that Mm -hmm. they will travel in. So, you know, keeping them in a small confined area does not do anything for them. They also, like I said, they smell horrible. (laughs) They smell so bad and they pee everywhere. Of course. That's how they communicate with each other you know they they leave scent markings where they go you can't house train them you know you can't get them to stop doing that because that's just part of their you know natural behavior so they pee everywhere and they can't be stopped you just got a little pee goblin that just pees all over your house all night and i promise it's not an energy you want to invite into your space and you know the spicy elbows. Yeah. So usually the idea is that removing their teeth like makes them not bite you. So then since they don't bite you, they don't inject their venom into you. So like it's supposed to be less dangerous. But then you've got a whole other set of issues because now you have an animal that has no teeth just throwing another wrench into the complication of their nutritional needs. Right. It's it's a mess. It never ends well. It's it's tragic all around for everybody. So unfortunately, they're so cute that videos of slow lorises have just really popped off on social media, especially on YouTube. So you've probably seen them. Uh, these videos usually idealize the experience. They show the lorises like eating fruit and rice and, you know, usually in a very cute, fluffy, comfy setting. Mm. And they're just, they, they look very peaceful, right? Because they're slow moving creatures. Some of the videos show slow lorises being tickled. 
And then the loris like throws its arms up above its head, like I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And to a human who has probably experienced tickling humans and seeing that as a play response, it seems very cute. But that's not what it means in a slow loris. That's like a threat response where they're they're panicking. It's not cute in the way that you may assume it is if you don't know that about slow lorises. Mm -hmm. So this content, it seems like, oh, you know, how bad could it be? It's just a video of a slow loris. It's not really that big a deal but these videos you know when they get up into the millions of views like they have what happens is this causes a spike in demand for slow lorises being kept as pets so people see a cute video on youtube they think oh my gosh it's so cute i gotta have one mm -hmm. so they go and try to find somewhere where they can buy one and keep it as a pet this incentivizes poaching you know people have a reason like oh gosh everybody wants to buy these little animals now i have a reason to go out into the woods and find them and and bring them back so that i can sell them mm -hmm. earlier i mentioned that slow lorises have eye shine mm -hmm. so it makes it actually really easy to go out into the forest and what they'll do is they'll shine a spotlight up in the trees and like wave a spotlight like kind of sweep it around and the slow loris's eyes will shine back and they'll it's easy to see them. And once you find them, they don't try to flee, right? Because like that's not their predator response. They prefer to freeze or hide. But for a human that's already seen it, you know it's there, you know, that's not gonna help them to flee from a human that's trying to catch them. Right. So they really don't have any means of getting away in that situation. And then once the person buys the slow loris and brings it into their home and inevitably realizes that they've made a huge mistake and cannot care for this animal, a lot of times what people will end up doing is just setting them free wherever they are, just out the door. <laughs> so then that introduces a whole new set of problems because right. now you have an invasive species. Yeah. So it's it's really just like this avalanche of problems from the increased demand for yeah. slow lorises. So the IUCN red list does classify three of the slow loris species as vulnerable, four of them as endangered, and two of them as critically endangered. Wow. So all of them are not doing good. Mm -hmm. They're all at risk of extinction. So I guess what I want to leave people with is that if you do see this content online, like you see videos or pictures or like Instagram accounts. Instagram and TikTok are really bad about this. So if you see this content online of not just slow lorises, but any primate that's being kept in a person's home as a pet, including monkeys and lemurs, just first of all, don't share or engage with that content in any way, because that's what's incentivizing it, right? True. That's what they're able to monetize, right? Like people could see it as an investment opportunity and like, oh, you know, videos of cute pet monkeys will get millions of views and then I'll make a bunch of money off of ads on these videos. So I need to get pet monkeys so I can make cute videos to make a lot of money off of the videos. Don't don't share, don't engage. Try to just click away if you can. What I do when I see this stuff is I block the account that posted it. That's what I do. You don't have to do that, but it helps to curate your timeline so you're not seeing stuff like that. I mean, I will be the first to admit, I used to eat these videos up. Sure. You know, like I, when I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, I was just seeing a video of a cute little animal that I thought was super adorable, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And they had me in their clutches real bad. <laughs> like I was so deep into it, but, but now I really kind of get the context of these videos and why it's really not cute. And so now when I see it, I cannot see it as cute anymore because it's just 
distressing. Yeah. The IUCN primate specialist group actually has guidelines for imagery of non-human primates, specifically designed to discourage the association of primates with pets. So these guidelines include things like making sure that a primate isn't being held by a human, ensuring there's a minimum distance between humans and primates, making sure that the context of the photo is very obvious. Mm -hmm. So like say it's a zoo that's posting pictures of the primates they have at the zoo it should be very obvious that the primate is being kept in a zoo exhibit. Or if it is, maybe it's like receiving veterinary care or something. It should be very obvious that it is being seen by vets in a controlled environment. Basically, like if you see a picture of a primate or something, it should be very clear what it's doing there, why it's there. So red flags to look out for would be like a non-human primate in a human's home. Um, If it's wearing clothes, if it's doing tricks, anything that makes you look at it and think, oh my gosh, it's so cute. I want one. Mm. Like that reaction is not helpful. (laughs) That reaction is what you want to avoid. Um, So I guess the thing that I want people to take away from like this whole episode in general is to be mindful of the kind of content that you're engaging with on social media when it comes to animals. Because what may look like an innocent and wholesome cute animal video could actually be like a symptom of a much larger wildlife trafficking problem. Yep. And this was a journey I had to go on, you know, like I had to break myself of of these habits of just watching every cute animal video I could get my hands on because I I get it. I get the impulse, man. <laughs> you know, it, it 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 breaks my heart to have to part ways with my cute animal videos, but you know, it's it's what's best. Growth. It's a redemption arc. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the slow loris. Thanks, honey. Thank you. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network, and then let's get back to your animal. All right. I don't think we'll have a problem with the pet trade on mine. (laughs) (laughs) I should hope not. Hey, Max Fun listeners, this is Cameron Esposito. I'm a stand-up comic, actor, writer, best-selling author, and podcaster. I got a great show called Query, where I interview LGBTQ plus luminaries across, oh, a bunch of fields, people in entertainment, astronauts, musicians, rock stars. I am bringing the show to maximum fun. You can listen right now. And I am so happy to be on this network. We have new episodes out every Monday. You can listen at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. It's official. MaxFun has become a co-op. We're now a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you. Thanks to supporters and listeners like you, MaxFun will always be a place where employees have a say. Thanks to you, shows can continue to partner with an independent, values-driven network. Thanks to you, we're able to carry on our commitment to our shows and the community we've grown together. Learn more about what becoming a co-op means for us and you at MaximumFun.org co-op. That's MaximumFun.org slash C-O-O-P. So, darling, what animal do you bring us today? I will be talking about the southern cassowary. I'm so hyped for this. (laughs) This is a fantastic animal. Big. 
Big boy. <laughs> Scientific name, Cassuarius. Cassuarius. Oh, you got two in a row, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah. Last did. time you had Iguana, Iguana. Uh-huh. So, Cassuary was requested by Greg Bento via email. Thank you, Greg. And I chose the Southern Cassuary. There are two other extant species of cassowary, but I chose the southern one. Any particular reason why you chose it's the southern bigger one? one. <laughs> <laughs> you like them big. <laughs> so yeah, I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web as well as the Australian Museum. Nice. Yeah. So we describe what these things look like. Absolutely. They are very large, flightless birds. Not ostrich large, but pretty large. Generally ostrich-shaped. Sort of. Because they have the long legs and the long neck. They have some very distinct features, though. Yeah, you would not mistake it for an ostrich. <laughs> they have black hair-like feathers, and they have a blue head, like a, a head without any feathers on it, which is blue, and it has red on the back. It also has what is called a cask on top of their heads, mm-hmm. which looks like a helmet. And they have two red wattles hanging from their neck. The double red wattle is one of the things that identifies them from the other species of cassowary. Mm, okay. I love a waddle on anything. Yes, that's that's another one too. We we had a well, no, it wasn't a waddle. It was a um the pendulous doolap. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you love a good pendulous doolap, don't you? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and when I say big, they are about 102 to 170 centimeters long, or 3.3 to 5.5 feet. Just a little shorter than me. Yeah. And weighing 29 to 59 kilograms or 64 to 130 pounds. It's very big for a bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be found in New Guinea, Cape York, which is northeast Australia, Saram, and Aru Islands. Outside of New Guinea, which is where they believe to come from originally, mm-hmm. uh, they're thought to exist in other places due to trade. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just trading cassowaries around? Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. What do you want for my cassowary? <laughs> do you have a Charizard? <laughs> <laughs> they are a ratite, so they are related to emus, ostriches, rayas, and particularly kiwis. Yeah, they got a little buddy down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, emus are in Australia, too. Mm-hmm. So they got their emu buddies and their kiwi friends. Yep. Ratites are really interesting. They are. If you're interested in the evolution of flightless birds, particularly ratites, I went into it in a good amount of depth in the emu episode, yes. which was some time ago. So here's my see other episode. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna jump right into it for our first category of effectiveness. I'm giving a full ten out of ten on effectiveness. Not. Mm-hmm. This so, is a rock star of an animal. They're big. The size <laughs> is something they have going for them. <laughs> But, of course, that has costed them being able to fly. I'll take it, yeah. honestly. Good well, trade-off. <laughs> what good was it doing them? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Uh, so their main weapon are their strong legs with big claws. Big, uh, meaty <laughs> claws. And the, the the one on like the middle toe can be up to 12 centimeters long or five inches. Whoa, that's big. Yeah. The middle one? Yeah, I think it's the middle one. Okay. It's, yeah, it's the one that sticks out the furthest. Sure, yeah. And surprisingly, they're also good swimmers and jumpers. Well, maybe the jumpers isn't too surprising, but <laughs> swimming was a little more surprising. A lot of leg-based <laughs> skills that they're really excelling at. <laughs> yeah. They've allocated every point they've got into their legs. Yeah. And the next thing I want to talk about, which I found pretty interesting, was the cask on their head. Yes, absolutely. What's that all about? So it's... 
possibly related to the sound that they make, which is like a deep, very loud rumbling. It's very loud and one of the lowest frequency sounds made by birds. Whoa. It's around 23 hertz, which is near the bottom of the human hearing range, which is around 20 hertz. Um, But that is around the lowest F sharp on a standard piano, to give you an idea of how low that is. Okay, so we would still be able to hear this sound. Yeah, it gets tricky, but I guess my own personal experience is sounds when they get to that frequency. It's not so much hearing as is feeling them. I know exactly what you mean yeah. yeah it's like a rumbly mm-hmm. like a vibration that you're just kind of like feeling in your chest yeah which that's all hearing is really but you know. <laughs> <laughs> i get what you mean though yeah so yeah that's that's the neat thing about the cask on top of your head my other my other guess about it was going to be it was some sort of battering ram type thing but that doesn't <laughs> appear to be the case <laughs> i've heard that it's a heat sink that makes sense did, did you come across this in your research i did not but that would make sense yeah i've heard that it helps them dissipate heat like the dewlap. <laughs> Just like their pendulous dewlaps. <laughs> they eat mainly fruit off the ground, um, which makes sense because they cannot fly. But they're still so tall that the ground is so far away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but they also eat insects, small vertebrates, and fungi. So you didn't sound very confident in how you were saying that word. I was about 70% confident. <laughs> <laughs> just say it like five different ways and then I'll just splice in whichever one is F- correct. Fungi, mm-hmm. fungi, mm-hmm. fungi. Oh, you've departed. <laughs> Fun guy. There you go. Love that one. <laughs> That's it. That's all the ways. J- jokes on you. I'm leaving all of them in. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they, they eat fruit off the floor, like of the forest, that when they fall off the trees. So these things in their territories are based off how many fruit trees are in that territory, dropping fruit at enough frequency that it can sustain itself. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Because <laughs> this is a big bird. Yeah, yeah. So they yeah, need yeah. a lot. A good bit, yeah. Interesting, because... <laughs> They really are at the mercy of the tree. <laughs> just completely at the whim of gravity. Just enough trees with root frightening. Not frightening. Ripening. The root frightening. <laughs> <laughs> this is rough. But yeah, that's how they, they do their thing. Now, many of the things they eat are poisonous to humans. Mm. So if you ever find yourself stranded in australia or Mm -hmm. new guinea or these other places and you think i don't know what to eat here i'm gonna watch to see what the cassowaries are eating oh (laughs) don't do that (laughs) don't do it or you could watch them and then say oh i'm not gonna eat i'm gonna eat the opposite of what the cassowary (laughs) eats i don't think that's gonna get you much further though (laughs) i gotta check something (laughs) throw a big mac at a cassowary (laughs) (laughs) please don't eat it it. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and the final thing I want to talk about was their those feathers, their hair-like feathers provide defense, both from each other, from those powerful kicks, mm. but also um, so they can just run through like bushes and tree branches and stuff. Oh, uh, like the, thorns and stuff. The areas they're found in are known for plants that have very thorny branches. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> I wonder if they've got that spicy tree, you know, the one that yeah, you touch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
don't know. Puts a billion needles into your skin. The Australia population is found in a very specific, oh. like relatively small area of sure. Australia. But that's cool, though, that their feathers are kind of helping them mm-hmm. not have to worry about thorns. I hadn't thought about that because when you said it was defensive, I'm like, nah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what can't break through a layer of feathers? Yeah. So an, an interesting note here. We've actually seen one of these, maybe maybe two. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, mm-hmm. they have one or two southern cassowaries. Yeah. Interesting birds. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about this, but we saw them. Okay, so they're housed in separate exhibits, mm-hmm. not together, as I understand would be well, ill-advised. This, this is a great segue into Ingenuity. Oh, okay. I'll talk about um, it later then. So, which I'm giving is just a general 7 out of 10. But these birds are normally solitary. Outside of breeding. There it is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the ones we saw at the alligator farm were housed separately in different exhibit Mm. areas, I suppose. But they could see each other across a walkway. Right. Like they were on opposite sides of this sort of like paved area. Mm -hmm. And they seemed none too pleased (laughs) about the presence of each other. So one of them was like running in circles. Like it had, it was just running laps around its area. Uh And the other one was kind of pacing back and forth angrily. Yeah. They seemed, they seemed like they had beef. It did seem like that. (laughs) Because outside of mating, they they are solitary and very territorial. Because like I mentioned, they have to have a territory large enough that has, you know, fruit bearing trees to sustain one bird, right? That's true. So I guess... Pickens are kind of slim. They yeah. got to be pretty fierce about not, mm-hmm. not sharing. <laughs> but interesting about their mating behavior, the females will, during a breeding season, mate with and then lay eggs with uh, several males. But after the she lays the eggs, it's the males that take care of the eggs hatching. <gasps> they incubate. The males incubate them. Okay. So after she's done laying the eggs, she's out of there. Goodbye. <laughs> And then the male incubates and then, you know, raises the young, uh, teaching them how to, you know, forage and eat and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. But eventually they get to a point where, the, where they're like, nope, get out. This is my territory. Go find your own. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because I guess at some point you've got to flip the switch yeah. between being world's best dad and, okay, you're one of you're one of the yeah. men now. Yeah. And now I want nothing more to yeah. do with you. Yeah. You know how to get fruit now, but this is all my fruit. Go find your own. <laughs> <laughs> you have to immediately like stop clapping yeah. like for your beautiful son <laughs> now speaking of young one of the coolest things about the cassowary is their eggs are bright green i love this yes oh, gorgeous. <laughs> like emeralds mm-hmm. glittering glistening and they're big they too. are big remind me of jurassic park a little bit i've heard that you can eat them I mean, I'm sure you can, but I've heard that they're, like, eaten. Yeah, I mean, you run the risk of going toe-to-toe with a cassowary. But Which you don't want to do. Because <laughs> I guess this is a good time to mention this, too. We hear about the flight and fight response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am a flightless bird. No. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I guess all they've got left is fight, huh? <laughs> They'll stand and fight when they're cornered, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like it doesn't even take them being cornered. <laughs> but... 
if they have the opportunity and if they're feeling, I guess, a little generous that day, they could also just book it, right? Because they, they can just go th- right through like dense forests that maybe other things couldn't do. That's true. I guess they do kind of have a choo-choo train so mentality. Homer Simpson right out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, if they if they have been so adapted to being able to just plow through whatever's in their way, yeah. you know, they don't really need to worry about obstacles i don't know how true this is but one of the things i read was labeling the the southern castle area as the most dangerous bird to humans i mean how many other dangerous birds are there (laughs) i don't know like what's the competition like you know like what are they up against it's got to be a it's got to be a combination of proximity to other humans and how Mm -hmm. dense those human populations are Mm -hmm. and then also ability to cause harm to a human (laughs) right because i'm thinking of like other birds like of that size mm. probably aren't crossing paths with humans that often right like emus but emus seem nicer <laughs> <laughs> you know like i feel like a cassowary is just like a punk a, a very rude emu <laughs> it's a reskinned velociraptor honestly <laughs> it is cassowary is one of the ones where like when i'm trying to explain to people that birds are living descendants of dinosaurs a cassowary is a perfect yeah. demonstration yeah you definitely see it although uh, technically they're they're bigger than velociraptors but oh yeah velociraptors are kind of little but they're yeah. they're the jurassic park velociraptors yes <laughs> <laughs> put that slider all the way to the right <laughs> so yeah that wraps up ingenuity and finally aesthetics giving an eight out of ten which mm. might seem a little surprising a little bit i thought you would have gone higher with this one because of the blue See, I I would have thought you would have thought I would have gone lower <laughs> just because of the the naked head thing. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that does drag it down a little. Here's where they got some extra points. It's what their babies look like. Oh boy, I they love a cute baby. Are stripy. Yes. <laughs> so the brown with black stripes, like horizontal stripes, nailing it. Like you know, a ton of other babies out there, like um the the, the river hog. I think it's what it's called. Red river hog. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. one. There's a um, whole thing in the Lion King 2019 <laughs> movie. They made baby Pumbaa, who's supposed to be a warthog. They did a flashback where you see him as a baby. Yeah. He's clearly a red river hog because red river hog babies are much cuter than baby warthogs. Yeah, it's and stripey. Thing. And stripey, yes. yes. Tapirs also, stripey as babies. Yes. So, so cute. Yes. Nails it every every time. <laughs> Knocks it out of the park. So yeah, the young, very, very cute. And I thought the two red waddles was neat. Is it? <laughs> Yeah. Is neat the word we want to use? <laughs> it is, and I'm tired of pretending that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but the blue head is really cool. It is. It is. Because you don't see that color in nature often, it seems like, right? Mm-hmm. And then wrapping it up, conservation status, least concern. Mm. But population decreasing, and this is as of a 2018 assessment. Appear to have been getting better because their biggest threat is loss of habitat, but the places in which they are found have made great strides in halting the destruction of that habitat. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Still decreasing. Yes. So still work to be done, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there was some progress made yes. on that front. We don't hear that too often yep. Yep. on this show. <laughs> I did want to mention that very recently our friend Paul Chomo was a guest on a podcast that I have also been a guest on. It's called High Panda Pod. 
And the like whole gist of that podcast is that they pit animals against each other to see which one would be the best at doing a job. Hmm. So the one that I was on, we were trying to argue which animal would be the best bard in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Mine was the lyre bird. So I was trying to argue why a lyre bird makes the best bard. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Paul was on High Panda Pod debating which animal makes the best Super Smash Brothers character. <laughs> and Paul did bring the cassowary okay. as the best uh, animal to put in Super Smash Brothers, which I think was a great choice. Yeah, for so, sure. So uh, that podcast is not as family friendly as ours. So maybe that's one for the grownups only. But uh, <laughs> if that sounds like an interesting premise to you, go check that out because it was really cute. It's awesome. It's very fun. Thank you, baby. That was that was awesome. Yeah. It's a great animal. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Thank you so much to everybody who has listened today and always. I hope you've enjoyed this time with us. We really appreciate you trusting us with your time in this way. Uh, if you liked what you heard today, I would love it. And Christian, I believe, would also love it if you mm. could leave us a good review on your podcatcher. We got a couple of really sweet reviews on Apple Podcasts. One of them from Lily Valley, who left just the sweetest review and another one by okay here's the name the way i'm gonna read this name charlie boo <laughs> <laughs> just go look at the reviews you'll know it when you see it <laughs> very sweet thank you both for your reviews uh we we love it when folks do that mm-hmm. you can also connect with us on social media we have a facebook group we're on twitter instagram we have a discord server you can send us an email my email address is ellen at just the zoo of us.com. if you have an animal you want to hear us talk about on the show please send it to me in an email that is the absolute best way to get that to me uh we'd also like to say thank you to maximum fun for having us on their network alongside their other uh, fantastic shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. Uh, you can check those shows out and learn more about the network over at MaximumFun.org. And also while you're there, if you feel like you uh, really love our show and want to see it continue to bloom and be its best self, uh, it would be great if you signed up for a membership to support us and the other shows on our network. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our beautiful theme music. Louis Zong actually also just released a new song with Brian David Gilbert. It's really, really good. It's called Breezy Slide. So if you like our theme music, go listen to Louis Zong's other music because it slaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all for today. We'll see you all next week. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Oh, next week's episode is about hyenas. Bye. Bye. Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.